0: The following audio is brought to you by Emanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. More information about our church can be found at emmanueltuscaloosa.org. Okay, uh, if you look at your handout that's in front of you, we've got a couple of things uh, in here. Obviously, we've got the blanks on front and back that we've got. You've got your verses uh, there. And then on the very back page, the last page, um, page 7, You have basically two uh, sources um, that some of this comes from. I bolded the wrong one, Uh, I would just say. I bolded um, the Thomas Schreiner book, and I should have bolded the Graham Goldsworthy book because the vast majority of this handout comes from Goldsworthy and his book, uh, The Son of God and the New Creation. Um, This comes from a series of books that are published called Short Studies in Biblical Theology. Um, they're very small. I would recommend them to you. I don't make any money off the sale of these books, um, but I would, I would recommend them to you as, as the way that they're written is designed for people in churches to read. So um, they're short. They're, you can probably read them in you know, a matter of an hour, two hours, if you, were just, you had no distractions. Uh, with distractions, who knows? Could take you four weeks. I don't know. Um, But, is it, a set, the, it is a set, yeah, short series in biblical, short studies in biblical theology is a set of probably 15 books or so, and they're paperback, and they're, paperback they're, you know, super thin, I think they're paperback, I actually don't have a digital, I don't have anything but a digital copy of them, you, paperback, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe what, 100 pages, 120 pages at most, yeah, uh, Crossway, you can probably order them off Christian Book, Amazon. various other places, Amazon. Um, but anyway, you you can find them short studies in biblical theology. They also have a parallel series to that, short studies in systematic theology. So you can um, you know find those studies as well. Those those are good. Um, I have less of those in the biblical theology, but they're they're all very good. And and I feel like they're written. Some of them are maybe a little bit more complicated, just because. They're topics that sometimes you're not used to reading about or thinking through, but there's not going to be like Greek and Hebrew stuff in there. There's not going to be, you know, things like that that are that throw you off or written in another language or anything like that. So um, it should be, you know, might take you a little bit, but I, I would commend them to you. So a lot of this comes from that as we're thinking about uh, what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. And we talked about last week. Now, this week might be a little bit more on the beaten path, like a little bit more of what you would kind of expect, whereas last week might not have been. And just as a review of what we talked about last week of Jesus being the Son of God, um, obviously the the Old Testament, I think I skipped two, yeah. The New Testament declares uh, proudly that Jesus, in addition to being the Son of David and Abraham and Mary and Joseph, is also the Son of God. But sometimes we make errors in kind of thinking um, or considering the sonship of Christ. And the first error that we make is thinking that the phrase Son of God refers only to Jesus' deity, that he's the Son of God, and so therefore he is uh, deified. He is, you know, he's the second person of the Trinity as we we, uh, know him. Um, so that's one error that it, that thinking that New Testament references to Jesus as the Son of God only is referring to His deity. The second error is in thinking that Christ's Sonship only refers to His humanity. So He is a Son. Therefore, that is referring to the fact that He is, he is human. Um, the Old Testament actually refers to Son of God or uses the son of god in in many different ways but two of them are really important that we talked about last week one of them is in reference to israel remember israel is identified in the old testament as god's firstborn son um he calls israel his son he brings them out of egypt and he he tells moses to refer to them as his firstborn son As uh, in order to bring them out. He calls them that in Micah, in uh, in Hosea, in several other places. He refers to Israel as his firstborn son, the Son of God. So it's important that we understand Israel is identified that way. It's also important that we understand that the king of Israel is referred to as the Son of God. So uh, David is referred to, called out as the Son of God. In the Davidic Covenant, when God comes to David and makes a promise to him and says, you know, I'm going to raise up uh, your your line, your line will always be on the throne, Um, he tells him specifically that you are my son, that your son is going to be my son. He's literally going to be the son of God. and We see this in the Psalms reflected a number of times that David is the son of God, And, and so it concerns the king. So we're looking at... In the Old Testament, the phrase Son of God comes to refer to not just Israel, but then the king, and, and not just David even, but if you go all the way back to Adam, Adam is referred to as the Son of God. Even in Luke, when when uh, Luke goes through the genealogy of Christ, he traces it all the way back to Adam, and it's so-and-so is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so, is the son of so-and-so, and then eventually gets to Adam, the Son of God. And so, the 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 thinking of Adam is the first king over God's world that he's created. You are here to steward, to represent me. And that's the way you would think about a king, is I am bringing in God's law. I am enacting God's reality on this nation, and we are going to act this particular way because God has given this to me, and I'm giving this to you. So, he is an emissary. He is a representative. He is going in God's image, in His name and likeness, with His signet ring, if you will, to put God's stamp on everything that He touches. And of course, Adam is corrupted by sin as He uh, takes the bite from um, from the, the tree. And kings after that are all corrupted. But that doesn't that still shows David as that. Same kind of king who's coming to rule over God's world and enact God's law over the nation of Israel. So, Son of God. Very important. Um, but then we see in the New Testament that Jesus is the man who stands as, one, the true Adam. So we see that Luke is drawing out those uh, that, that reference to Adam being the original Son of God, and now we've got the new Adam coming in as the Son of God. Um, he's the ideal Son of David. We see that in Matthew and Mark and Luke as they depict Jesus being of the line of David. He's the Son of God, meaning He is the, the, the authentic, the true, the King that we expected, the King that we needed, the Messiah, the One to come, however you want to put it. Um, but also, and this is where sometimes we can uh, we can kind of get lost a little bit because we're not used to thinking in this way. But he's the true and faithful Israel, and and I think sometimes this is where um, you know maybe I don't know previous ways of thinking about Israel or whatever might um, might give us some confusion. But Matthew is very clearly presenting. Jesus as the new and true and better Israel. All of the things that Israel was given to do was a decree of righteousness. This, this is a righteous standard that you're to live by, and that is the law of Moses. And they proved for you know millennia that they couldn't follow it. And that they were constantly infringing upon God's law. So when Jesus comes in, Matthew's intention is to show us that here is a Jew born not only of man, but also born of God, in in that he is God. And when he comes into the world, his desire and his agenda is to fulfill all the righteous commandments that God had ever given to Israel. So as a Jew... Fulfilling all of the obligations of the law without sin means that all of the rewards that were then reaped from obedience to the law are then given to Jesus. So you, you understand the connection? So as Israel now, as the representative of Israel, just as David would have been, let's say, let's say David was perfect. This would have been him, right? But he obviously wasn't. Just as as David was the representative of Israel, here is Jesus, the true king, actually living the righteous standards that God had given to his king to live. And so now he's not only living that way, but then he's teaching all of those who are part of his kingdom to live that way as well and to follow after him. And so he's living uh, righteously, and as such, he reaps the righteous rewards that Israel uh, gets. And so even in his death, when he dies, we're going to talk about this sacrifice much later on, but when he dies, having lived righteously, he then merits all the righteous rewards. The, the deal with the cross, though, is that on the cross, because he takes the wrath of God, he chooses not to take the rewards. He actually gives the rewards to those who come after him, to the people in his kingdom. Does that make sense? So, Um, so all, but all the rewards of Israel he gets, that's why Paul in the New Testament will say all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Because he's saying, look, here's all the promises that were made to Israel in the Old Testament. And all of those have been granted to Jesus. And it's his to distribute however he chooses. He is the rightful king. He's the rightful owner of all of those promises, of all the rewards of those promises. Does that make sense? there questions about that yeah okay um so now as we go into the second part of this we're thinking about the son of god perhaps in a more traditional way that you're that you're used to thinking about him um and we're looking at jesus as the son of god and the son of man and again we can fall in that kind of trap that like the son of god oh that refers to his deity well and then the Son of Man, well, that refers to him being born of a woman, right? He's the Son of Man. Well, not exactly. Uh, what we're going to see is maybe a little bit more complex than that. And we're going to look specifically at the Gospel of John. And so John is certainly going to agree with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he's going to say yes, but then he's going to say yes and, right? I agree with all that. That's true about Jesus. That's a well-worn path. You don't need a fourth Gospel on what has already been you know, laid out for you. There's, there's more also. So he identifies Jesus with all the covenant promises of Israel. Uh, yes, he gets all of those things. But his emphasis is also in the direction of the Son being the one who came from above to do the work for which the Father sent him. So you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke who are a lot concerned with Jesus as the new Adam, the new David, and, and all of the things that it means for us here on earth, who he is. He's our king and, and things like that. And John comes in and agrees with all of that, but then says, yes, but there is also a heavenly component as well that we need to address, that it, that it, it means to be the Son of God. So he is concerned not just with the horizontal direction, but the vertical direction. And why that's important is, I think it's important to build categories in your mind for what these Gospels or really what any book of the Bible is mostly talking about. Uh, You sit across the table from a person who just came to Christ and they ask you, where should I start? Right. I want to read the Bible. Where should I start? Well, it depends on what they need. Right. I mean, any book, you can make an argument for starting anywhere in the Bible okay, and if you just Google, where should I start reading, you're going to find an argument from every book of the Bible. You should really start here. You should really start here. This is great. You can't do without this book. It's because they're all inspired. That's the reason why, all right? So, but it's helpful to remember, okay, if we're wrestling with what it means that Jesus is God in the flesh, we're probably going to want to start with John because that's mainly what he's concerned with, okay? Okay is the fact that He is sent from the Father. So, unlike Matthew, unlike Mark and Luke, where, quote, Son of God, is a term concerning Jesus' earthly lineage to the people of the Old Testament, you know, Son of David, Son of Adam, Son of Abraham. John refers to David specifically, but a lot of the, um, the patriarchs and the people that came before Refers to them uh, only when the when the Jews speculate about the origins of Christ. So he'll show you a, a, a kind of a little vignette of the people kind of wondering who this Christ is, and they're really concerned with his earthly lineage. You have to remember that the people of the time are mostly thinking Messiah is a man that's going to be born into the world, and he's going to give them some form of political deliverance. We saw that in the intertestamental period, the period between Old Testament and New Testament that we were talking about several weeks ago, that their desire is to be free from the burden of the Roman rule that's on top of them. And so, primarily, their thinking about the Messiah is a king who, yes, is going to be born of the line of David, but is going to be a, a guy like you and me, you know, a person who is going to come to give us some sort of freedom, and he's going to be blessed by God in some way, much like David was, maybe much like Moses was, or or the like. And so uh, there's people that are speculating about his earthly heritage. So John 7, 42 is an example of that. Has not Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So they're, they're concerned mostly, and that's, you know, a lot In John, that's a lot of the references to David, especially. Now, when he starts referencing some of the patriarchs or some of the prophets like Moses and things like that, there's another way in which it's used. And um, as Jesus disputes with the Jews over who he is, his references to Moses and Abraham are not him talking about his linear descent, his earthly lineage from them at least in the Gospel of John. Most of the time, he's referencing Moses or Abraham. It's him talking about his priority over them. So he is coming to essentially take over for them, and he has command, he has precedence over Moses and Abraham. So think about that for just a second. What John is laying out here about Jesus. This is a very Jewish gospel. I think we, we, on, in Feast, we went through chapter 7, I think we got through, and then we switched to Hebrews. But if you're tracking with the gospel of John, you're seeing him lay out feast and festival and um, activity that the Jews do, and he's showing Jesus as the fulfillment of all of those things. But not only that, Jesus is then going to bring up people like Abraham and Moses to all of the Jews that are listening to him, and he's going to say, yeah, I'm greater than they are. I'm ahead of them. I mean, you could call yourself God, and that would be blasphemy. Just below that, though, maybe a couple of notches, would be putting yourself above Moses and, and all of them, right? David and so on. But it shows his priority. So just give a couple examples here. Uh, John five forty-five to 47 Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Moses, everything that Moses is saying was pointing you to me. That's who he's writing about. Okay, that's a bold claim. Um, How about John 8, 48 to 59? The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am." So they picked up stones to throw at him because they get it what he's saying, even though it falls on deaf ears for a lot of us. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So there's several places in John where Jesus not only vaults himself over uh, the patriarchs or the prophets of old, Moses, for example. But he also equates himself with God by using the phrase I am. And there's several I am, I think seven total I am statements in John that Jesus makes. uh, The last of which, to my knowledge, off the top of my head here, is when they come to arrest him. And if you pay really close attention, the people go to arrest him, and they say, he says, or they 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 come there to arrest him, and he says, Who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And at that last statement of I am, they all fall down. <laughs> right there. And they all fell down. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's John's emphatic statement that this is what Jesus is testifying to. That he's talking about his priority over all of those that came before. And of course, the, the Jews are baffled by this, and they take exception with it. So John opens, if we're we're going back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, he opens his Gospel um, with one identified as the Word, who is said to be simultaneously God and with God, and through Him all things are made. Look at John 1, 1 1-3. I know you know this, but let's just remember it. Um, John 1, 1 1-3. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Um, I, I, the reason that I want to go back through, and it's just a few bullet points, but the reason that I want to go back through some of this is because it's always good to remember. I've got the wrong thing up there, don't I? Do I? Okay. Yeah. Maybe I thought I was going to a different slide. That's probably what it was. I read, I read a verse for the next slide, and I went to this one. So, oh well. Um, so, what we're dealing with in John, let me comment on this, so now that I've skipped ahead of myself. Um, more clearly than any other gospel, John is laying out Jesus as both God and man. Now, let's go to this one. Uh, The Gospel of John opens with one identified as the Word, who is said to be simultaneously God and with God, uh, and through Him all things were made. So, the verse that we just read, the reason that I want to go back through this path, even though we've talked about this, even recently we've talked about this, is because I think when it comes to doctrines of Christian faith, especially like the doctrine of the Trinity, I think is probably the biggest one, uh, I've talked about this in building blocks a good deal over the last 12 weeks or so. Um, but I think this is one where we get maybe easily confused, uh, or if we were asked to sit down and explain this to our friends or our family members, we would kind of fumble all over ourselves. And I don't think we have to. I mean, I, I, for my part, I prefer to take language that the creeds have put out there and kind of use that as kind of you know a a memory for me or whatever but you really as a christian don't have to say anything more than the scriptures already say right so it it, it's very freeing to you to go okay john as i said on the previous slide that it spent no, no time on he's laying out jesus as both god and man well you don't have to turn any further than the first three verses to find that right so hey what do you mean a uh, new Christian asks you, what do you mean Jesus is, is both God and man? Okay, well, let's look at John 1, to 1-3. Just look at what he's saying. Okay, just look very closely at what he's saying. It's right there in your handout, in the beginning was the Word. Okay, we don't know who the Word is yet. He'll tell us who that is, but we're just going to say the Word, okay? The Word was with God. What does it mean to be with God? You're next to Him, right? Okay, the word was with God. So he's next to God. And the word was God. Okay? So what do you mean Jesus is both God and man? Well, says he was with God and he was God. How do you explain that? Two gods? No, no, no. That's not what he says. He doesn't say he was a God. That's what Mormons believe. All right? He says he was, he was God. If he was meaning two gods he would say he was a God. That would mean he was with God and he was a God. That would mean there are two. Right? That's not what he says. He says he was with God and he was God. There's my explanation. He was with God and he was? Well, I don't understand how that works. All right. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God and the Word was God. All right? Do you have to understand all the inner workings of everything? You drive a car every day, how many of you can explain to me the inner workings of a combustion engine? Maybe like half of us in this room. Of course you can, Tommy, I get it, right? <laughs> All right, show off, okay? Mm. I understand how it works, okay. But most of us can't, right? We get in it, we hit the key, and we you know, either push the button or turn the key or whatever we do, and we go. We we know how it works that way, but we don't we couldn't explain the draw a diagram for anybody. Neither is God really asking you to do that. Now we should endeavor to know more, but we don't have to say anything more than what the scriptures say. All right? Now, if I want to go further, well, let me just read verses two and three. He was in the beginning with God. Wait, was he was he created? Well, no. He was in the beginning with God. So he wasn't created. In fact. Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There is no way John could say it any clearer than that. Was he created? Well, no, that would make him made. Right? And it already says, without him, nothing was made that was made. So John is saying he wasn't made. How do you say he was there with God in the beginning? other than to say he was there before all things were made. See how simple it can really be when you just take the phrases and just say this is what we believe as Christians. This is who Jesus is. Okay, so I think it's worth it to kind of go through here and just think about this a little bit. So we've taken those first three verses apart, and you can see what John is saying about this one called the Word. But then later in, uh, in this same opening chapter... The same word, he says, takes on flesh and dwells among us. Look at verse 14. This is an, kind of an update, okay? We took a, he took a little excursion to talk about John the Baptist, and then he comes back and he says, and the word, that same word that was in the first three verses, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, he doesn't exactly say Son of God there in the exact phrase, but the gist is there, right? You would agree uh, with that. He says, okay, so this same one that I'm talking about that was, that was with God and was God, um, and through Him all things were made that had been made, He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw it, okay? Not only that, he's identified then 3 verses later as Jesus Christ. He says for the law, the same context, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, which is the same phrase he uses in verse 14, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So this word that took on flesh, we know him as Jesus Christ. So John is is drawing a if you I mean, you kind of have to look at the verses in those orders, but you can see the straight line that he's drawing. From this Word who was with God and was God, to taking on flesh, to being known to us as the person Jesus Christ. And then, uh, he, uh, he, he says that he is God and at the Father's side. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. So, was this a second God that has now made him known? Is Jesus... No, nope. He was God. Right? So we know he's talking about one God, two persons. And we haven't got to the Spirit yet, but just track with me so far. Um, so he became known to us as Jesus, and that's who I'm talking about. Then further, in the same chapter, John the Baptist identifies this Word that has become flesh as Jesus and uh, says that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and this same One He identifies explicitly as the Son of God. John 1, 29-34 The next day He saw Jesus coming toward Him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one whom I said, after me comes a, comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend uh, and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So what we've seen over the last bit is the first three Gospels really concerned with Jesus as the Son of David and the King, rightful King, new Israel, things like that which are all tremendously important things, not to gloss over, but John comes in and you see him wanting to direct your attention up and to say he's all of those things and he is divine. He is divine. He came from heaven and he came from heaven with a message of salvation to you and me. In fact, John identifies this as the purpose of his entire gospel that you would know that Jesus is the Son of God. I have written these things so that you will know that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing in Him, you'll have life in His name. So John is focused on Jesus being at the right hand of the Father before all things, co-equal, equal with God, and coming down for us and for our salvation. So then... Later in that same first chapter, Nathanael is going to come to Jesus and he's going to address him as the Son of God once he hears what Jesus actually says to him. So Nathanael is saying to himself uh, and to, a, to another disciple, he hears this guy, Hey, you got to come listen to this guy because his, his name is Jesus from Nazareth. You probably, you've probably heard of him. Uh, you've got to come listen to this guy. We found the one. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? You know towns like that, right? You probably say that, you know, can anything good? From-? Uh, so we had towns like that growing up. Most of my family was from there. Um, uh, so, <laughs> so, so he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, uh, I, before you were under the tree, I saw you. He's like, how do you, how do you know me? He goes, the man in whom no deceit is found, I, I know you. He says, how, how do you know me? Well, before you were under the fig tree, I, I saw you. Now, we don't know what that's in reference to. We don't. The, the chosen makes a really cool presentation of it. I know you're going to bring up the chosen. I know everybody's going to raise their hand and talk about the chosen. <laughs> but, and they, they have a, you know interesting presentation of it. But no, the truth is we don't know. We don't know what he was referencing, but it was clearly something he and Nathaniel knew. And it was clearly something that causes Nathaniel to call him the Son of God and the King of Israel. And so he says, he says in response to that, uh, look at John 1, 49-51. Uh, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, how does Nathaniel mean that? Well, probably Nathaniel means that, like we've talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as uh, a reference to him being the king, him being the one to come deliver us from the hand of the Romans and things like that. But Nathaniel is likely speaking much further beyond what he really knows and saying, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. And Jesus answers to him, look in 50, Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Um, now, I'm going to go to the next one. Who, who knows what that's in reference to when he says that? Yeah, this is a, a, a reference to Jacob's Ladder, commonly referred to as Jacob's Ladder. I think there were children's songs about it. Uh, but Jacob has this, uh, dream one night as he is, his fathers have sort of died off and he's, you know, running from Esau and he has this dream, uh, where he lays down at Bethel, he puts his head on a rock and he sees in this vision, uh, angels ascending and descending from heaven. God stands above it, above the ladder. And God reiterates to Jacob the promise that he's made to Abraham and Isaac before him. And so Jacob knows at that spot, God is there. In fact, he names the place Bethel, which is literally house of God. And the point of what Jacob is saying is that in naming it that, in dedicating it to the Lord, and and seeing this vision and having this promise reiterated to Him, is that God is with me. He has declared that this land will be an inheritance for all of my kids and all those to come after me. And He is placing the promise that He originally gave to Abraham on me. Jesus, however doesn't tie God's presence to a location, does he? What does he say? Look at it. What does he say? You will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, we're going to talk about Son of Man in just a second, but he tells Nathanael, this is what you're going to see, not necessarily meaning... That Nathaniel is going to see physical angels, you know, all the time, or anything like that. But but meant to say that he will see the angels of God descending on the Son of Man, meaning God's presence will be with me wherever I go. And if you're with me, you're going to see it. Nathaniel's being called to be a disciple. You're going to be there. So to see heaven opened is to be given... That's not what I flipped to. uh, There it goes. To see heaven opened is to be given a vision of divine matters. So, what the disciples are promised then is heaven sent confirmation that the one they have acknowledged as the Messiah has been appointed by God, that he is the very presence of God standing in front of them. And wherever he goes, they are going to see angels ascending and descending. This is going to be Bethel walking around with you. This is going to be the house of God walking around with you everywhere you go. Tracking so far? So again, John is lifting your eyes up and he's saying, this is the guy, not just king, not just earthly. We're not just talking earthly. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke weren't just talking earthly either. We're not just talking earthly. We're talking heavenly is this one that's come. So then we go forward in the Gospel of John. I'm having all kinds of fits with this thing. There it goes. Okay. So during his interaction with Nicodemus then, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, the one who has descended from heaven and the one through whom eternal life uh, can be had by belief. Look at John 3, 9 to 15. So now we go to Jesus' favorite term, Son of Man. What does he mean by that? Look at John 3, 9 to 15. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. This, he's using the term son of man as the one who descended from heaven. So the same one that we've been talking about is called the son of God. We're now seeing Jesus' favorite term for that is son of man. But if you, if you look at the words son of man, the first thought that comes to mind is he's a child of Mary. That's what he means by the term son of man. But is that what he means by son of man? Obviously not because he said the son of man descended from heaven you have uh, some of you have sons they are by definition a son of man aren't they how many of them descended from heaven now i know you love your baby boys <laughs> <laughs> here's a son of mama and yeah, all kinds of other names i'm sure you've got for him but um uh, among which are Pookie Bear and all kinds of other things, you know. But, but, but descended from heaven is not what we would normally say about a son of a man. Okay, what well, turns out that the phrase son of man does not mean what a lot of the world would read son of man meaning when Jesus says that. They're quick to tell you, well, it's the, it's the favorite term for Jesus. is his favorite name because he, he wanted to refuse being called the Son of God and, and call himself instead the Son of Man. Okay, so let's dispel that myth here real quick. Uh, in the context, being the one through whom salvation is given, not only is he descended from heaven, but he is the one through whom salvation is given. In that context, the title Son of Man is, really is synonymous, especially in John's Gospel, is synonymous with the term Son of God, which is made clear in the verses that follow that, uh, John 3, 16-21, which I'm sure you don't remember at all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son... "...into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light." and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, he's saying that not only is the Son of Man one that was descended from heaven, but He's one through whom salvation is given. Okay, now, how do we what, How do we understand the Son of Man? So, What John's Gospel is emphasizing is that what is meant by the title Son of God and Son of Man is the One sent from above, just like Daniel 7 calls out, which we're going to read in just a second, who is God by nature. His very nature is God. And who is the One to inherit the throne of God's kingdom to rule humanity as a divine human. So He's called both. Son of God, Son of Man. In John's Gospel especially, they mean effectively the same thing. He is divine. He has taken on flesh, and through Him and Him alone is salvation found. Okay? Um, now, where does this term, Son of Man, come from, and why, how do we know it's divine? Look at in your handout on page 5. Daniel 7, 9-14. to 14. Um, To set up the context of Daniel 7, uh, there are Daniel sees visions of beasts. And I know we've been through this even recently. I want to go through it again. Daniel sees visions of beasts. And four beasts to be exact. Each beast gets bigger and badder than the one that came before it. And each beast is claiming his own authority. So each one kind of usurps the one that came before it. And each one of these beasts represents nations. That's what a beast represents, is a nation. And so he, uh, each one of these beasts rise up, and um, you know, they're, they're jawing at each other and wanting to take authority and all this kind of stuff. And they all have crowns on their head. And the crown represents the authority that they've been given. All right, so then Daniel sees uh, this next part of the vision in verse 9. And it's written there in front of you on page 5. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Okay, so beasts are warring. Those are warring nations. Power and authority is given to them. Then thrones are now there for each of them to sit on, and one called the Ancient of Days walks in and sits down. Okay, if we were to put this in New Testament terms, we would call this God the Father, okay? The Ancient of Days comes in and sits down, and he says, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is on the big bad beast that was the fourth one. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. So here's... The Ancient of Days sitting down, he opens the books to judge, and there's a disturbance in the courtroom. This one nation is over here going, yeah, 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 and making a bunch of noise. And he said, I said, be quiet. And he just, he kills him and throws his body out to be burned. And so then everyone's quiet after that, right? You can kind of, it tends to be, you can hear a pin drop in the courtroom of God after this happens. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So Daniel says he the Ancient of Days took away their rule and their authority, but they lived on. So these nations continue to exist, but their, their real transcendent rule and authority is gone, vanquished. Okay? When all of this takes place. Okay. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold... Their authority has been taken away, but they're permitted to last a little while longer. Then Daniel looks and he sees one coming like a son of man, comes riding on the clouds, and God takes has taken all the authority from all these other nations and he places it on the head of this one like son of man. And he, he says specifically about him, his dominion and kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. Is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the, the authority that's given to this one like the Son of Man is the kind of dominion that's never going to be taken away. He's not going to be like one of these beasts. He's going to always have this everlasting dominion. So when Jesus comes in, the reason that he prefers the title Son of Man is specifically because, not because he is born of man, like you would kind of think, the reason he likes the title Son of Man is because it points to the mission that he's coming to do. And he's telling the Jews, I'm the Son of Man, like in Daniel 7, because I'm here to take your authority away. And all the nations, for that matter, I'm coming to take your authority away. Romans, I'm coming to take your authority away. Now, the Romans might be thinking, well, well yeah, but we're still here. Well, they're not really anymore, but America might be saying, well, yeah, but we're still here. Yeah, your authority was taken away. Your transcendent, eternal, everlasting, powerful authority has been taken away, but you're permitted to go on living for a little while. But your authority has been given to one like a son of man. So when Jesus is then accused on trial by Caiaphas and he says, tell us who you are. Are you the Son of God. And he says, You have said so. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great authority. Caiaphas hears him say that, tears his robes, and says he has has committed blasphemy right here in front of us while he's on trial. Now, why would him be calling himself the Son of Man be blasphemy if he's saying he's just born of man? Because Son of Man is this character in Daniel 7 who's having everlasting authority and he's taking it away from everybody who has temporary authority. Everybody. Not just the Romans, but the Jews too. You have no more authority. It's been given to me and you're going to see it happen when you crucify me and I rise from the dead. Which is why Paul will say in Romans 1, he was declared the Son of God when he rose from the dead. It's not that he became the Son of God then. He was the Son of God before time existed. He became; he was declared the Son of God by God in His resurrection from the dead because then we all came to know that what He had said about Him taking the authority from all the rulers was true. There's no more way you can signify taking someone's rule and authority than rising from the dead. Right? You can't kill me. How much more rule and authority do you have over me except that you can kill me? That's the extent of your rule. Well, Jesus is declaring when he rises from the dead, God is declaring about Jesus, you can't kill him because he's the Son of Man, right? Your authority has been given. What's that? Well, when you go back and read John 3, his explanation for that is the Spirit blows where He wishes. (laughs) So, we'll move on. We won't get there just yet. Um, We're coming there, though. Uh, So, the Son of God is the Son of the Father and comes from the Father to do the Father's work. So, the way we regard the Son is the way we regard the Father. We cannot separate the two persons even though they are clearly to be distinguished. So in other words, we can't say about Jesus that he is, he is a God, so we can't separate the fact that they are both God, by very nature they are God, one God, but they do need to be distinguished. So what we're going to see in the Gospel of John is that the Gospel both unites them and distinguishes them. So, we've seen where the gospel unites them. John 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. You know, things like that. But then, if you go back uh, to, I think, 519 here. um, So, yeah, 519. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing, whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Um, Let's see. John, um, let me look at another one here. Maybe 14, 1030 maybe? I should have marked these out. So John 1030, I and the Father are one. Uh, Again, he tells uh, Philip, uh, have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. But then you see in John 4, 34, there at the bottom of page 5, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Um, anyway, there, there's parts of the gospel, especially when he says, look, I am going away. In John 14, 28, you heard me say, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Right? So there's, there's two components to this. There's one where I and the Father are one. And in the very same chapter, he will say, the Father is greater than I. Which is it? Are you one? Or is the Father greater than you? And the answer is, yes. You've been... Trained, I I see. Uh, So, the relationship between the Son and the Father in the New Testament, especially clarified in the Gospel of John, is that the Father is God and He has the role, the task of sending and commanding. And the Son is God, so we're not separating those two, He is God, but He is sent. And He is obedient. Any appearance of inferiority of the Son is focused instead on the humiliation of the Son in His earthly life. A humiliation which, in His death, reaches its climax and his end. So, while Jesus is, is here on earth in bodily form taking on flesh he is submitting in all accounts to the will of the father and that is that is the place that he says he is he is sent and he is obedient okay so but in the in his resurrection he is declared to be the son of god he is king uh he is putting all enemies under the footstool of god so um Not humiliation anymore, but honor and worship and authority. Now, so combining all those things that we talked about the last two weeks, all that is meant in the Gospels that Jesus is the Son of God is to say then that Jesus is first, truly God. He is taken on flesh to rule God's kingdom because humanity was ensnared by sin and was incapable of fulfilling God's commands to bear His image and rule on His behalf. So, And then, as truly man, He has fulfilled the role of the Son of God in Adam, Israel, and David, representing God perfectly in righteousness as God's true King. So, this right here, Him being truly God and truly man, is the core component of the Gospel. This is it. So when you're presenting the gospel to somebody, Jesus' nature, his, His person and His work, is vital to their being saved. The reason John goes through great pains to lay that out, it's who Jesus is. So, we're looking at Adam being created as the Son of God and given the image of God to go forth into the world and demonstrate the glory of God to humanity. But once he sins, he can't demonstrate the glory of God any longer because he's sinful. He doesn't bear the image in the same way. I, I like to think of it as the image is marred. Okay? We still have the image of God, but it is marred. It isn't clear any longer. And we're not a great representative of God if we bear His image sinfully. Because that's not truly really bearing His image. So, Jesus has to be of one nature with the Father. Otherwise, He cannot bear His image truly. He cannot demonstrate truly the glory of God unless He is perfect. But if He's born as a man, how can He be perfect? Right? That's the conundrum. How can, this, how can we ever get out of this circle? Because now that we're marred, and now that we're handing off to our children the knowledge of good and evil, and now that their image is, the image of God is marred in them, how can we ever get out of this cycle? In comes one who is truly God, but is also truly man, yet doesn't bear the marring, the sin nature of his, of Adam right? And so the other part of this is mankind was given a job to do, and that was exercise the dominion of God on the earth, demonstrate his glory. Essentially, Adam has the role of being a king, raising up children and raising up an entire world that would be subject to him and then ultimately to God. But Adam fails in that. So the person that comes to the earth to save us has to be man, He can't be anything less than man, because man is given the task to do it. But if he is man, then he's going to be sinful, and he can't do it, right? So the nature of Jesus being truly God and truly man, they they have to both be there. In order to actually submit to this one that we're calling Christ to be saved, we have to understand his actual nature. Otherwise, we can't have salvation. If he's less than man, then he didn't save us. If he's less than God, then he couldn't save us. So he has to be both, not one or the other. Is that, are you tracking with me? Yeah. So, it's, as you read through the Old Testament, your purpose in reading through the Old Testament is to see that all of the promises that are made, all of the expectations that are laid out, that are, are we're hoping, oh, one day will be, all of those things are pointing us to Jesus. The law, even Jesus says, Moses wrote about me. How did Jesus, how did Moses write about? Because Moses is telling them, here is the law: love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and you should go back and just read Deuteronomy chapter six. Okay. Read Deuteronomy chapter 6. That is the le- G- G- Moses is laying out there in front of the children of Israel. This is what you must do. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then, right after you read that, skip all the way to Deuteronomy 30 and read verse 6 of Deuteronomy 30. So read chapter 6, then flip forward. See all the obligations they're given to you. And then flip forward to chapter 30, verse 6. And Moses is going to tell them, one day he's going to give you a new heart so that you can love me with your heart, soul, mind, and dream. Didn't you just tell them in chapter 6 they had to? Yes. Moses is writing about the day when Christ will come, that all this law is going to do is expose in your heart wickedness and evil, and you're not going to be able to keep it. And he tells them that. You're not going to be able to keep this law. But one day, God will give you a new heart. And it's this day when the Son of God, Son of Man, comes to earth to reign in righteousness. That's when he will give you a new heart so that you may love him. Questions? Questions first before comments. James. James. Yeah. How is it that they can come in and see a different Jesus in, in this? Um, the, 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 um, it's very important that we understand how salvation comes to a person. It's vital that you grasp this. God gives the new heart first. And then the person sees and believes. So when you say, how, how is it that they can hear this, they can read this, and not, and then present Jesus in another light or not come to Jesus. It's because exactly what Moses said all the way back in Deuteronomy is echoed in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in John chapter 3. That's what Jesus is saying. You have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, How can I be born? I enter into my mother's womb again? And he's like, No, you have to be born again. As I'm born from heaven. In other words, you have to have the Spirit of God in you. God has to give you that. That's the only way people can be saved. Is if God actually grants the new heart. It's vital that you see that. That always comes first. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And God makes you alive. believing the way in which god grants the new heart is through the telling of the gospel here's the reason why your inferiority complex about the gospel has to go because god is not saying to you here are blind people Go convince them. He's not telling you that. Belief comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Yours is simply to tell. You may have, I heard presented the other day, beautifully. (laughs) And I I was like, I'm totally taking that. (laughs) There are people who are witnesses, and there are people who are advocates. God gifts them differently. Some people make great logical arguments about who Jesus is, some people say, I can't do that, but I can tell you what Jesus did for me, right? So you may be an advocate, or you may be a witness, and it doesn't matter. You go out and give what you've got. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. It's the way that God grants the new heart. Your obligation is to tell with whatever you've got, however much or ever how little you've got, is to tell. And through your telling, He opens Eyes and grants new hearts, but it's still his to grant. So you tell, and no matter how lost they are, I don't care if they're the worst person you've ever seen in your life, God grants new hearts. Be obedient, obedient. tell. That's it. No pressure. No, I mean, really. Stand in front of them, tell them the gospel, whatever you've got. God opens hearts. Questions? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray that we would grasp it as we go through this study of the New Testament. Help us to understand. Help us to grow in insight and wisdom. Help us to come know more of who you are, that our eyes may be opened, that we may grow in love, to cherish you, to worship you above all else, to be like the man digging in the field finds the treasure and immediately covers it up and goes and sells everything he owns so that he may own the field. I pray that that would be a description of us as we encounter Christ. And as we come to know more of who you are, we'll see what kind of treasure we actually have in Christ. We pray that you would do that for us in our study of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you live in the Tuscaloosa area and are looking for a church, we'd love for you to visit. Our service times are Sunday mornings at 1030 and Wednesday nights at 615.